Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flux Diet Cert, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and I'm actually back in Minnesota, my parents' place in Alexandria. We just rolled in last night, so we'll be home later today after hanging out here, visiting Grandma for a while, and yeah, first time I'll be home in three-ish weeks. Yeah. So yeah. Your definition of home is expanded to all of Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of funny, isn't it? They're like, hey, we're in Minnesota. <laughs> right. Because normally you're so far away, it's all relative, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, in North Dakota last night, so that was fun. Oh, I went up to North Dakota. One of the last times I competed, I drove that lonely drive all the way up there by myself. Um, yeah. That was interesting. There was still deep yeah. snow on the ground and stuff like that, but anyway. Oh, yeah. It can get nasty through there in the winter, too. Oof. <laughs> um, okay. Everyone, we are going to cover uh, the topic of superfoods we've probably touched on this in one way or the other in years past but uh, so we'll just say revisit them <laughs> because most people aren't going to pan back through years of stuff to see so we have some interesting stuff to discuss like you know the whole concept is is actually controversial you know is there such a thing as a superfood and if there are which ones are they and why things like that what what do we do do we purposely seek certain foods Things like that. But first we have the usual uh, mail and news. Strength and muscle sport news. This first one is from Shannon. So thank you for sending this, Shannon. She um, said, uh, basically, hey guys, I saw this article today in the Atlantic about Rage, R-A-G-E, protein. Um, It's the receptor for advanced glycation end products. And its influence on weight gain. And I I found this odd because Mike and I are both familiar with these advanced glycation end products, right? It's one of the theories of aging. You know, slowly carbohydrate residues start to come up your cells and, you know, different pathways, malfunction and that sort of thing. Uh, Especially if you're sedentary, eating a high refined carb diet and, and crap like that. But she sent a link, uh, and said, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Thanks, love the show. I look forward to and listen every week, especially now that I'm back in the gym, regaining strength at six months postpartum with twins. So good on you, Shannon. I'm, I, how do I even respond to that? I, I can't beat that. So good stuff. Um, okay, so here's what she sent. It says, a potential hidden factor in why people have so much trouble losing weight Uh, It says the conventional wisdom, of course, about weight loss is simple. Get in a calorie deficit. Uh, Mike and I know, though, that that's, you know, it's sort of the beginning of the equation, but there are lots of things that affect this. And this article goes on to point out that endocrinologists have known for decades that the science of weight gain is a little bit more um, particular than simply calories in and calories out especially for listeners like ours that are interested in repartitioning, right, and getting nutrients partitioned toward muscle mass and away from fat tissue for the most part. Uh, It says, along with a team of researchers, Anne-Marie Schmidt, an endocrinologist at New York University School of Medicine, um, she was part of this new study, essentially, looking at a molecular mechanism that controls weight gain and loss in mice. So let's keep that in mind. This is in rodents, uh, again, though, with the idea that they're fellow mammals and they're going to be similar in a lot of ways to people. It says, um, there is a protein that shuts down the animal's ability to burn fat in times of bodily stress. 
and they're defining stress as things like uh, dieting, right, calorie restriction, or overeating. So either one looking uh, like a stressor to the body. It says a protein on the surface of fat cells called the receptor for advanced glycation end products, or RAGE, uh, is apparently part of this stress response. Uh, Schmidt's latest study found an enormous difference in weight gain between two test groups. There were conventional mice, and then there were mice whose RAGE pathway had been deleted. So they're sort of genetically uh, modified here. It says the latter group gained 70% less weight than conventional mice, had lower glucose levels, and expended more energy while eating the same high-fat diet and, ha- and having the same amount of physical activity. So when they don't have this receptor, they're just doing much better in general, like metabolically. Um, it says Schmidt p- uh, posits that the rage receptor might have evolved to protect mammals, including humans, uh, when another meal might not be predictably forthcoming. So the idea here is that... Um, there's a balance between acute effects and something you need right now versus long-term debt you must pay in some sense. So it says Schmidt theorizes that rage's influence on chronic inflammation, which has been looked at before, uh, would have been more useful to humans uh, when our lifespan was much shorter. In other words, when you barely make it past reproductive age, and people need to think about it, right? And even a hundred years ago, human lifespan was much, much shorter than it is now. And so people weren't worried about trying to stay healthy and any debt or price they must pay later in life. And we have to think about that quite a bit more uh, now than our ancestors might have. It says the known side effects of rage, such as chronic inflammatory diseases, might have been meaningless to the well-being of humans who only lived into their 40s in the ancient past. And then this goes on, and there's some other support for this by Utpal Pajvani, a professor and endocrinologist at Columbia University. He expressed similar optimism that targeting this rage protein uh, may be one of those links. I'm not going to go so far as to say the missing link, but a link between why some people diet well and some don't. Uh, so, Or if they could find, for example, medicines, develop pharmaceuticals, that somehow blunt or reduce the negative effects of this receptor and its downstream, you know, cellular effects. So, uh, I don't know, Mike, have you heard anything <clears throat> about, like, how no. AGEs no, affect... That's, yeah. That's the first time I've heard of that. It's, uh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I no, I have all sorts of questions in my head, but... <laughs> yeah, as I looked at it, it was interesting. I just think it's a novel mechanism you know whereby stress causes some problems and affects dieting effectiveness and because normally what you and i have been classically trained to look at would be things like you know endocrine functions like you know the cyclic amp in a cell and and what it's doing or maintaining its presence or any number of kinds of things but this is like novel so it may be interesting parallel pathway i'm waiting to see more on its importance i mean 70 percent uh, essentially yeah, improvement huge. in mice is huge right yeah so this could yeah. be a much bigger deal than just the usual lipolytic hormones or the kinds of things that we've looked at yeah yeah one of the things i've, I've drawn out and sort of theorized and again it's not not just me but the relationship between the autonomic nervous system right so your parasympathetic and your sympathetic so parasympathetic, more rest and relax, sympathetic, more on the stress side, and then in relation to variability and metabolic flexibility, right? So your body's ability to change between fat and carbohydrates. And so I draw this little diagram with uh, fat being more on the parasympathetic side, carbohydrates being more on the sympathetic side. You know, the theory is that if you're constantly on the stress side, so your lifestyle is kind of a mess, or maybe you've got some internal stress from not being, quote-unquote, as healthy as you could be or what's going on, it's going to drive your body more to the carbohydrate end of the spectrum, you know, sort of blunting your body's ability to use fat. And obviously you can overcome this by having a caloric deficit, which calories are still going to matter, but how that then feeds back into 
uh, appetite regulation and, and things of that nature, I find super interesting because it's, you know, the old theory was a lipostatic theory of regulation, which has been kind of sort of disproven, but that if you have an enhanced ability to use fat as a fuel, maybe you won't get as hungry because you've got a fuel source that your body can regularly use and, and tap into. And that's a little bit debatable. It's probably not quite that simple. Um, but I'm sure you've seen this too, working with clients, the people who tend to be very stressed tend to not get as good of results. And we know that that can drive up appetite and, and things of that nature too. So maybe this is one of the you know potential pathways you know in that that we can look at also. No doubt. I mean, there are nuances. Like when I mentioned increased cyclic AMP in cells, everyone, if you're not familiar, it's a, at least the way I look at this from nutritional physiology is it's a signal to break down fuels. The interesting yeah. thing is in the presence of something like, yeah, the adrenaline rise, the epinephrine increase that you get with exercise, it preferentially degrades carbohydrates like you can see that on yep. a metabolic cart right now make no mistake cyclic amp again the second messenger in cells when uh, a hormone like adrenaline can't get into the cell it, it's going to increase fat catabolism as well but it's going to be disproportionately breaking down glycogen right and carbohydrates and um yeah and this I, I don't know how this plays into that but like like anything else when they discover something new like this then it's where does this puzzle piece fit into the the giant metabolic chart you know, like I have big posters on my wall, which is essentially all of human metabolism. Uh, it, it, well, you know, simplified, but I'm, most most undergrads look at that and don't think it's simplified. But where does this fit into that picture? Like you said, we used to say lipostatic theory. That makes makes me feel old too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in in my mind, a lot of that evolved into essentially leptin and the leptin yeah. system. You know, and that kind of thing. And yeah, and then how these things kind of come together, but. Thank you, Shannon, for that. That was cool. Yeah, and that does make me think of the whole leptin story, too, because the short version on that is that leptin was freaking amazing in mice, right? They had these OBOB mice where they would breed without the leptin receptor, and if you mess with leptin, the mice just got super fat, and then they gave them leptin, and they got super thin, and they thought they had discovered the cure for obesity, and they go to do it in humans, and basically found that humans the receptor for leptin probably not working the well as we should so just giving obese humans you know shots of leptin wasn't going to solve their their issue so it's interesting it's probably a piece of the puzzle but when you go scale up to humans it gets complicated and multiple redundant backup systems to backup systems too you know, I know you focus often on, and I think rightfully so, on insulin is such a powerful linchpin in a sure. lot of this, you know, fat selection as a fuel and whatnot. And I mean, I think what Shannon said is sort of uh, supportive of this idea that there is a link between obesity and diabetes, right? Type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Uh, and it could be that this receptor that's part of, generally when you're in a state of hyperglycemia, high blood sugar, everything's getting gummed up, uh, you know, pre prematurely maybe uh, and then it just becomes a vicious circle you know cycle and you just higher blood sugar more body fat more body fat higher blood sugar and this that's where this might fit in i mean she's asking for our thoughts on it so that's i'm thinking that's maybe a, a mechanism by which we we coin terms like diabetes you know so. yeah yeah then you think of maybe a simple a1c measure maybe there's some associative power with that that we haven't realized either so maybe that right. could be more predictive in humans than what we realize also absolutely okay we have uh, another one uh, fortress sent me this and a lot of old-time listeners remember when rob was on the show rob still faithfully sends me stuff if, if you go to ironradio.org and hit, you know, email the guys or whatever, it goes to Rob. Rob will read it, and then sometimes he'll comment on it, or sometimes he just sends it straight to me, forwards it on. And this is one. This is from uh, Dan. Um, it says, not sure if this is correct, but uh, email address for listener questions, but here we go. Uh, I recently had a blood panel done, and it showed slightly low HDL, uh, in this case uh, of 34 and a lot of guys, you know, are in the 40s usually, and that's not considered ideal either. I always felt it was a little unfair. You get these blanket statements like HDL cholesterol should be 60 milligrams per deciliter. You know, 
and that's kind of hard for a lot of men to reach just because we have androgens in our body and things like that. But anyway, so Dan's around 34. Doc suggested I stop taking fish oils, which surprised me. Any thoughts? And then he goes on to say, I have a moderately clean diet. And then he gives some of his lifts, and he's a definitely, a, I'd say, advanced intermediate kind of numbers here. You know, he's pulling nearly 500 pounds. He's benching around 300 almost, you know, things like that. Um, Here's some basic thoughts from me, Dan. First of all, fatty fish intake is broadly related to lower cardiovascular disease. Now, if you go look at the literature, and I just looked again this morning at papers from 2016 through through now, um, you are going to see mixed data as to whether or not the EPA or DHA or combination that are in high-dose fish oil supplements, whether they raise HDL, lower HDL, or simply don't affect HDL. So it's going to confuse the hell out of you if you go look at individual studies or even sometimes meta-analyses and review papers. Um, And I think this is because, A, you've got to really look at the population. Is this in healthy people? Because you could very quickly go down the rabbit hole into diabetics, renal patients, people whose metabolisms are very different from your own, right? So we have to be very careful because the data do look mixed, whether it raises, lowers, or doesn't affect HDL. Um, One of the things I know Mike will agree with this that's very consistent is, and these are also beneficial for reducing uh, cardiovascular or atherogenic risk, uh, but, but lower triglycerides is very common across fish oil studies, very common. Now, that's not usually considered quite as potent of a risk factor as something like HDL or LDL, but they do reliably lower uh, triglycerides. I think you're going to find that in almost any paper you look at. Um, and also, Almost always a reduction in C-reactive protein, which is a hepatic, a liver protein. It's an inflammatory marker, uh, and that's where the the reduced inflammation may be beneficial to uh, your heart and not just to, you know, let's say muscles or tendons or something like that. Um, So anyway, there's multiple things at work here, and I don't know how much you've read recently, Mike, but... I mean, there's a ton of stuff about HDL particle size. Like, all HDL is not good. So yeah. we have, or just like there's LDL particle size, right? LDL generally considered the bad cholesterol. Historically, HDL has been considered the quote-unquote good. But it depends on the particle size and even the little proteins that are expressed, you know, that are on the surface of these, uh, these little lipid packages that float around in your bloodstream. So uh, my wife, actually, years ago, she was recommended because her total cholesterol was elevated that she get put on a statin drug by this nurse. And I'm like, why don't we follow up with that? I mean, we didn't even have a lipid panel like Dan sent. I mean, she just had kind of a total cholesterol number. And I'm like, that's absurd. There are so many nuances here. Um, so she got a, a referral to a cardiologist and he said, no, no, I agree with your husband. You're, that's fine. You're fine. You know, her HDL was very high. Now, they didn't dig down into particle size or which proteins were present and that kind of thing. Um, And you do have to be careful, like I said, because even high HDL, like she has, um, isn't automatically protecting you from heart disease like we once thought, right? So we have to be careful with a a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, The last thing I'm going to add about Dan is uh, all of his numbers are low. He's setting his uh, basic lipid panel, and his total is low. I mean, like 133 low, right? His LDL is low. His triglycerides low. His HDL is low. But, you know, these blind little machine flags, these markers say, oh, HDL was 34. That's a problem. Well, it's is he on a all low low. diet. Well, he says a clean diet. So, yeah. yeah, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, my first thought, if I saw something like that, obviously, if it's uh, out of the normal, it's going to be a referral back to his physician. But based on the literature, my, my first question would be, is he on a very, very low fat diet? Because that can, you know, kind of depress all of those numbers in some people. Yes. Uh, I agree with you. The data on HDL and fish oil is pretty mixed. If anything, I'd say it maybe might help a little bit. But again, that probably depends on the background of his diet and fat intake and a bunch of other stuff. Right. I would say 34 is definitely on the low side. You know, if you look at things that can increase HDL that also 
will reduce cardiovascular risk, maybe not necessarily by that particular mechanism, but in conjunction with that, uh, possibly bumping the <clears throat> fat up a little bit in the diet. Uh, cardiovascular training makes a huge difference. That's yeah. more of a long-term type thing. It's going to take several weeks to months to see a, a bump in that. Uh, genetics make a huge difference, which isn't anything he can control at this point. That's from the Heritage Trial at the University of Minnesota. They had uh, one of the professors I had there was one of the lead uh, authors for it. He had been there for just forever. And he was saying that because they were trying to look at genetic components, they had to get, you know, the fathers and some of the sons or the whole family in there to be tested. And they were looking at cardiovascular risk, some stuff with like VO2 max. And he said that for the genetic stuff, it was interesting how some of these, you know, old Harley biker guys who would smoke cigarettes and never really trained, some of them even had just genetically a higher VO2 max just from you know, lucky, lucky strike of <laughs> who their parents were. Yeah. So there's kind of a genetic component to that with HDL too. Um, yeah, and particle size, I don't even know on that stuff anymore. I used to be more up to date on that literature. Uh, now I just email my buddy, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. We can maybe get on here at some point because I've just seen the literature kind of flip flop back and forth. And I always get a little nervous about something that's as complicated as cholesterol when it's like a super simple story, yeah, it makes me nervous because maybe it's true. Hopefully it is, but there's probably more different nuances with that. And and I would say the last thing is, you know, you're going to have to look at all the, the parameters on the blood work to see if he's at a cardiovascular risk or what's going on with that. Um, as you mentioned, like fish oil has overall, I'd say, pretty good risk reduction for cardiovascular disease in healthy people. You start getting into different diseases, that gets really messy pretty fast. But uh, I think it was Alberts et al. 1991 showed as fish oil increased pretty much in a linear capacity, your cardiovascular risk from all cause actually went down quite a bit. Um, we know that other countries that consume a lot of fish oil, you know, Japan, Greenland, they have much less cardiovascular disease than countries like the U.S., even after they try to epidemiologically correct for a bunch of different factors. So, yeah, I mean, I would say talk to his doc. I mean, if it were me, I'd say that is on the low side. I'd look at fat intake and especially how much cardiovascular training and other things he's doing and, you know, see if you can bump it up. I don't think HDL is the, the BL end all marker, but, you know, my bias is it's definitely on the low side. Yeah, I just think he's getting flagged for low HDL when all of the numbers are yeah. quite low, but they're not going to light up low, right? So no. Dan might be saying, well, well, Lonnie, what if, wouldn't those be flagged? Well, no, because LDL or total cholesterol, they're not going to have minimums like yeah, they do with HDL, right? Because those are, those are quote unquote bad versus HDL being good. Kind of Even super low HDL makes me worried. I mean, I had a super low HDL for a while, like ungodly low. Um, and it was just I was not eating enough calories. My fat intake was super low. I didn't do any cardiovascular training. My HDL was in the crap or two. And, of course, that was when I was finishing my Ph.D. and stressed out of my mind. So everything was askew. <laughs> you know, that's funny, Mike. Now that I'm older, my lipid profile looks quite a bit different. When I was younger, I looked a yeah. lot like Dan. Like all my numbers were low, including HDL. But when yeah. you think about what's your total cholesterol to HDL ratio without getting you know into the weeds with particle size and all that, um, the total to HDL ratio is a reasonable rule of thumb, I think. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of the same lifestyle suggestions that you did, right? Um, increased fat intake, like monounsaturated fats. Um, I know, for example, recently uh, when I switched from eating, I ate probably, uh, I'm at a ballpark, four or five whole eggs a week as part of, you know, mostly egg white breakfast, but I would throw in a whole egg. I just like the egg yolks and I like over easy eggs. Anyway, um, the, my total was a little high. It was too, I was laughing about this. If you remember, it was 201, and they were freaking out because yeah. I got that little H. <laughs> I got the little turn red like Dan's HDL number did. And so I pulled eggs out because I just wanted to see what would happen because I knew I had to go back. And three months later, I had lost – I had gone under 200, so everything turned green. Oh, yeah, we like that. Yay. Um, except it was all HDL that I lost, right? Yeah. And when I asked my doc about it, he's a really cool younger guy, Japanese guy. He – um. He's the kind of guy you walk in. I mean, not many physicians wear T-shirts and drop F-bombs, you know. <laughs> but he's really bright guy. And he's like, I'm like, but it all came from HDL. 
you know, so should I just put the eggs back in? This is sort of to your point, right? If your diet is too quote-unquote clean, then you could lose some HDL because sat fat and monounsaturated fats like olive oil are going to raise HDL probably. Uh, so I, he's like, well, yeah, it all came from the HDL, but without digging deeper, not all HDL is necessarily good. Um, So losing some HDL is probably still a move in the positive direction. I'm like, wow, this is just starting to confuse the hell out of me then, right? And so the (laughs) average person, I don't even think they realize there's good and bad cholesterol, you know, like HDL, LDL. And then when you say, well, some of the bad guys are worse guys, (laughs) you know, and then some of the good guy cholesterol like HDL are actually bad guys, you're like, oh, Jesus, so that's why I think you go to a, uh, a cardiologist. At no point, Dan, are Mike and I telling you not to listen to your doctor. No. If he says get off the fish oils, it's sure as hell not going to kill you. Uh, if if you're worried, go eat salmon twice a week. Nobody's going to stop yeah. you from that, you know, kind of thing. A um, couple other tidbits for raising HDL. Um, there are phytochemicals that improve lipid profile, probably like curcumin. I know there's some bioavailability issues there, but I actually take a bioavailable uh, curcumin supplement. Um, but curry and curcumin kinds of things, nuts like almonds and, and um, pistachios, those can, might boost your uh, HDL, partly because of the phytochemical profile, partly because of the monounsaturated fat in there. Um, cardio, like Mike was saying, generally related. I've actually seen an acute effect where it happens quite quickly and not just from dehydration, I've seen people put four or five milligrams per deciliter HDL um, on their numbers very quickly by just doing some jogging and stuff like that. But in in any case, that might be a little extreme, but there it is. And even alcohol intake. I don't know if you do that at all. You say your diet's very clean, but ethanol itself, probably especially if you get it from something like red wine, but even just alcohol itself is going to bump up your HDL numbers a couple of points. So those are some things you might want to consider um, beyond going to get, you know, a cardiologist to look at your numbers. So, yeah, the numbers I also look at a lot too are, as you mentioned, triglycerides, blood glucose. If you can get an insulin or a C peptide number, that's probably worthwhile also because it's again you want to look at the whole the whole picture too. But uh, I agree with those suggestions. Okay, so hopefully there are some thoughts. Again, you were just asking for some thoughts. We have one last piece, and this is going to set up our topic of the day because I started reading this paper, and I thought I'll just print off a couple of pages like you know the abstract so we could chat about it on the show. Uh, but the more I read, the more I'm thinking, oh, that's juicy. Oh, that's juicy too. So uh, no pun intended. This is about fruit. Uh, and again, the idea of a superfood. It's recent research on the health benefits of blueberries and their anthocyanins. So one of the first reasons I got interested in blueberries is there were a lot of bodybuilders back in the day. I remember Paul DeMeo, every morning he had his oatmeal and blueberries. It was almost a cheat meal for him when he was dieting, and he's gone now. But uh, then I was in Oxford, and all the professors there, these nutrition professors, almost to the man or woman – had blueberries regularly. I'm like, that's curious. You know, we were just talking about what we normally had for breakfast. Uh, anyway, uh, I digress. This is sort of looking at this. This is a brand new update. It's literally like five days old. It was published. Um, it basically says there's a growing body of positive scientific evidence from human observational and clinical research on the benefits of blueberries. There are also mechanistic studies using animal models and in vitro models. And again, when I see that sort of variety of evidence all pointing, right, to a particular theory, that's pretty strong. Lots of lines of evidence here. Blueberries contain a large number of phytochemicals, including anthocyanin pigments, right, those lovely blue-purple pigments, They have been associated with reduced risk of cardiovascular disease, death. (laughs) There's a side effect, right? There's an effect you want to avoid. Death. Not good for your performance. Yeah, not good. (laughs) Uh, Type 2 diabetes, improved weight maintenance, and neuroprotection. And that's what I was about to get to uh, at the very beginning. That's one of the things that I stumbled in when I 
first started looking at blueberries and why everybody was eating them and um, was this neuroprotective effect. Because I thought, what about powerlifters? You know, bodybuilders are so obsessed over diet all the time, but what could benefit powerlifters? And one of the things powerlifters endure, I think, is a lot of um, nervous system recovery. You know, like you do a single uh, or a couple very heavy deadlifts, and then you're like devastated for days. You know, so I started wondering, is there something you could eat that might actually help with nervous system, either CNS or peripheral recovery or something like that? And anyway, so I repeatedly started seeing effects that blueberries were neuroprotective, and here it is again. Of course, they have the usual anti-inflammatory and antioxidant actions. Uh, may also affect the gut microflora, according to this. And then it goes on to conclude that it's widely agreed that consuming ripe blueberries is recommended. Uh, by the way, this is from Cult, K-A-L-T, and colleagues, Advances in Nutrition. Um, let me just read one or two quotes from this paper. It starts off by saying blueberries were first popularized as a superfruit, quote-unquote, due mainly to the high in vitro antioxidant capacity of their abundant phenolic compounds. However, they have poor bioavailability. And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. It says an increasing body of evidence suggests blueberries and anthocyanins, which, by the way, blueberries are far and away the highest among most common uh, fruits. I'm not going to get into other berries, but when you, know, you look at apples and other th oranges and obviously things that aren't blue-purple, then uh, this is going to be a really rich source of this stuff uh, and how they reduce biomarkers of various diseases. There's a nice little chart in here. This is open access, by the way, too. You can actually go score this. Uh, if I jump here to mid-article, anthocyanin bioavailability, because it always comes up, whether it's, you know, curcumin or, I mean, pick something, some of the extracts from any number of herbs or foods. Uh, it says, associating the in vivo, so in living thing, metabolites of anthocyanins with health outcomes has been difficult because after ingestion, anthocyanins are converted to a large number of products. So it looks like they have rapid, complete breakdown. Uh, however, more than 50% of a labeled dose, so if you take one of the carbons on that anthocyanin and you make it a little heavy, and there's a stable isotope kind of thing, uh, labeled uh, fragments, if you will, of this anthocyanin still remained in the body after 48 hours. And it says anthocyanins and their phase two metabolites persist in urine long after the anthocyanin intake. Also, anthocyanins and their metabolites become localized in tissues around the body. So sort of trapped and localized there. So looks like the bioavailability may not be great. But when you think about these other things like their metabolites and how they might be sequestered in different tissues... Um, they seem to have an effect. And obviously, there's a lot of clinical work that suggests it could help with diabetes and carbohydrate metabolism and neuroprotection and everything else. So anyway, so I thought that was a very cool thing that could set up our topic of the day. Any thoughts from you, Mike, before we go to break? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, look at just anecdotally, like you said, diets of a lot of, you know, bodybuilders, physique athletes, you know, berries are almost in pretty much everyone that I've seen for the most part. Um, there's supplements you can buy that have been out on the market for a while, like the, was it cyanidin three glycoside that, you know, supposedly increases your body's ability to use carbs and some other stuff. Um, I did pull to see if there's any new research on that. There's one study here from 2017, uh, upregulation of skeletal muscle, uh, PGC one alpha through elevation of cyclic AMP levels by C3G enhances exercise performance, uh, which is interesting, right? So PGC one alpha may be one of the main regulators of different parts, especially exercise performance, especially on the cardiovascular uh, side. The downside was that the study was in mice and they gave them a massive dose and then just had them do some swimming exercises and things of that nature. So, I don't know. I think it's interesting. You know, it's been around for quite a while. There's some, you know, cell line data. There's some mouse data on it. But I haven't really seen much for human performance data on the individual components. But 
Uh, there's also some stuff on me help uh, reduce soreness, things of that nature. I think it's useful. Uh, is it probably the be all end all superfood? Probably not, but I think including things like blueberries and other berries in your diet is definitely a good idea. And probably other components in there that we haven't even looked at or studied or possibly even identified yet. Totally. And yeah, cascading effects. Uh, I'm looking at some quotes from the neuroprotection portion of this paper. And again, I encourage people to go look at this. Lower Parkinson's, it says blueberry and strawberry intake is associated with slower rates of cognitive decline as we age with an estimated delay in cognitive function of about 2.5 years. That's, so, that's pretty impressive for that. Um, anthocyanins are protective against cardiovascular and type 2 diabetes, which then could, again, cascade down to less Alzheimer's-type dementia. So there's a lot of stuff in here about neuroprotection and cognition uh, when it comes to berries. Again, I love my blueberries and my mixed berries. I just throw the you know frozen ones. This time of year, I mean, go get them, people, right, because you can freeze them. Oh, the other thing I was going to mention was they look like they lose about 1% of their uh, anthocyanin uh, capability, if you will, per month. So after 10 months in the freezer, which I usually get two big freezer bags this time of year, I sort of freeze them immediately fresh, right, because they're nice and big and juicy. Um, 10 months from now, they might have 10 or 12% less anthocyanin. But still, I'm talking about, you know, 90% still left and... Uh, it reinforces that freezing is usually a good idea. You know, freezing is similar to fresh. So Yeah. yeah a couple of years ago, I had a, a neuro supplement I was going to do, and I had everything ready to, to go on it. But one of the main ingredients, one of the studies came out that it wasn't as positive as I thought. But one of the ancillary components I had in it was actually a blueberry extract. Uh, to use mostly for uh, coloring, but there's also some, like you mentioned, good data on neuroprotective uh, effects of it too. Yeah, I just I keep reading this paper, and I'm just going to encourage people to go look. You might think, well, we're not old like you are, Lowry. <laughs> but <laughs> this is cognitive benefits were detected in school-aged children after acute intake of blueberries so um, a learning task was improved two hours after consuming a single dose of blueberry powder but not placebo so wow Uh, i'll take a little learning and memory yeah especially with very you know low side effects right okay everybody uh we're gonna go to break when we come back we're just gonna continue our discussion of superfoods like blueberries Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go.
Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Mike and Lonnie this week, and we're going to talk about superfoods for lifters. Trying to keep some specifics here for uh, our weightlifting brothers and sisters. Uh, First, let's start with a definition, and I'm not going to do this classically. I'm just going to toss out what I think, and then, Mike, you can offer what you think, but it's been very controversial. In fact, I've seen articles before, I think by dietitians and other people, that there are no such thing as superfoods. Right. This is foods are, are are foods, but I would argue, without question, some foods are better for you than others. And then you would want to know why, right? So I still think there are things like blueberries that, or berries in general, uh, that have unique benefits that come with them. I'm not offended by the term superfood as much, but some people are. I mean, I can see why you don't want anybody thinking, oh, if I just eat these three things, I'm all good you know, kind of thing. But let's start with a definition, Mike. What would you refer, you know, uh, uh, to these kinds of foods as, if not superfood? Yeah, I mean, I like using the term nutrient density, especially looking at micronutrients, right? So most of your classic, I'd say, superfoods are pretty high in different nutrients and generally lower in calories, right? So especially if you're trying to diet, you're trying to maximize micronutrient intake, and probably try to minimize some of the macronutrients to reduce calories. You could make an argument then that these quote-unquote superfoods are useful in that area. So I like trying to look at just nutrient density of micronutrients. And then you can get fancier and try to, you know, subcategorize them. Uh, In general, just looking at color is a a good way to do that without going too crazy. Yeah, 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 I agree. Uh, I I think one way where you and I differ a little bit because people say you guys never disagree. Well, we you know, <laughs> the literature is what it is. I don't know. I mean, yes, you can interpret things differently, but we're not politicians where we can both we can both look at a cup of coffee. Mike says it's a truck, and I say it's a rug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, we there there is some objective reality. I would like to think. In one way, I think we might differ. Some is I'm a little more conservative in the way I use the word nutrient. Like I've heard you use the term phytonutrient. Yeah. And I say phytochemical, and that's intentional because I know there are non-essential nutrients, like creatine is a good example. Um, But, yeah, so, I mean, sometimes it's just uh, maybe a little semantic in a way um, or preference. But let me give some examples of the kinds of foods we're talking about here, uh, and then we'll see if Mike can add any to this list here. But... um, I just scribbled down, obviously, berries, right? Blackberries, blueberries, uh, oatmeal. Uh, oats have some quite a few functional characteristics, and that's one of the ways I define this. I think if they're, if they're functional in some way, it's a natural functional food. Uh, coffee, uh, tea, both green and black. Almonds, uh, broccoli. Broccoli is the most nutrient-dense food I can imagine, actually, if you think about it. All the hundreds, again, if you include the phytochemicals, hundreds of phytochemicals, vitamins, minerals, almost no calories. Um, Curry dishes, salmon, I would argue even maybe yams, very popular traditional bodybuilder food, you know, lots of vitamin A and stuff in there, and some fiber and potassium and carbs. But you get the idea of what the kinds of foods we're talking about, whole foods generally, uh, can you think of others? Uh, this is sort of the a common top 10 kind of list. Yeah, the only things that we probably add in there are even more citrus type stuff. I mean, even you could throw kiwi in there, you know, obviously oranges, lemons, limes, um, potentially some of the other ones that are higher in fat. Like I'm thinking of trying to get vitamin E, possibly tocotrienols, things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. And then... One that I know that I completely missed up until probably three years ago, and even when I did the Flex Diet Cert, I have a separate subcategory for it, is uh, fungi or mushrooms because they tend to be completely different um, lineage in terms of species and things of that nature and have some pretty unique compounds that you don't really 
find in other foods, or if you do find them, they're in very uh, low concentrations. And again, you know, very low in calories. Um, so I think those tend to be kind of forgotten, and I know I kind of just dismissed them up until a few years ago. Yeah, we've been talking about having a mushroom episode for ages, and listeners... Yeah, we're working for, on it. Yeah, we're working <laughs> on it, because we need a supplier-type guy from through Mike, and then we... We, there's a local mushroom hunter that my wife and I know. Uh, in fact, she just whipped up some delicious mushrooms. I don't even know what kind they were. Oh, nice. We were at her place uh, the other night kind of thing. Um, but we're trying to coordinate that. But, yeah, that's a great one that I, I did not put on my list. Um, you're right. So things like, I think, I'm trying to remember, like chromium, vitamin D. There are things that you just don't get a lot of from plants, right, because fungi are, yeah. are not plants. So interesting stuff in there for sure. Um, okay, let's let's get fun with the conversation, though. What about you specifically? Does Dr. Nelson have certain foods that you eat specifically to get a function out of it, like either a nutrient or a functional effect? Yeah, I think, you know, things that I try to get in higher amounts in the morning. So I tend to, I got this from Mike Bledsoe probably three years ago, and I take uh, a shake and add some type of protein to it. Uh, lately, I've been using more rice protein. So my, my wife doesn't handle dairy super well, so that way we can make one big one together and share it. And then the typical bodybuilding type stuff like creatine. Um, I have been adding a lot more uh, cacao, just raw ground uh, cacao without any uh, flavoring or anything else to it. Yeah. So those listeners probably figured out that's one of the main components in chocolate. Uh, huge amount of polyphenols, different compounds in there that are beneficial, low calories. So I'd say you could maybe toss that in as a superfood also. Add some type of berries. Uh, lately, I've been doing strawberries or blueberries. Maybe a little coconut oil, just to be a little bit better consistency. Not a lot. And then from there, I'll play around with adding other kind of micronutrients to it. Sometimes I'll add a greens powder, although that tends to make it taste pretty bad, <laughs> to be honest. Um, if I make it fresh, I'll add spinach to it. Yes. Spinach is one of those things where it, if you don't mind the change in color sometimes, depending upon what you mix it with, you can get some weird looking hues to it. <laughs> and I find if I consume it fresh, it tends to taste pretty good. Um, if I add a lot of spinach and for whatever reason, maybe it's just my own neuroticies or things, if I don't add a lot of citrus to it, the spinach in there just doesn't seem to stay for very long. I don't know why that is, but maybe it's just my own brain. Add some spinach to it, and yeah, lately I've been adding more uh, just different uh, mushroom powders. Oh. So lately I've been using more reishi and uh, turkey tail, mostly huh. just for immune function, especially when you know traveling and sleeping in a different bed every night for the past week. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, uh, a lot of yours are powders. Um, I, I guess I'm trying not to think about pills, right? But yeah. when you say cacao so now, or, yeah, those are ingredients that you put into foods, you know, and dishes yeah. kind of thing. So yeah. that's... So in terms of whole foods, I do kind of rotate between potatoes. Uh, so I'll rotate between sweet potatoes. Like now I'll eat a lot more red potatoes because they're easy to get at the farmer's market. So I'll rotate kind of th through those just for variety. Uh, so one thing I do is looking at a particular food, I'll try to do like even a micro rotation with it, like with potatoes. Uh, some foods it's very hard to do, like bananas, because we only get one type of banana. But especially if you're traveling to other countries, a lot of times you can get a lot more uh, variety there too. Or even going to a different store, picking uh, different things, different times a year. Uh, other things I like to add is just kind of rotating some types of greens in. Could be spinach, could be uh, broccoli is a good one. Uh, what's the other one we've had recently? Um, avocados are more on the, the fat side. But, um, oh, Brussels sprouts and asparagus. Oh, right on. So, yep. And I'm just rotating through uh, some of those. Um, so I, it's hard because I actually have to literally sit down, do a diet log, and look at it and purposely add things to the grocery list for next week. Because if I don't, I'll just end up being a complete creature of habit. And I tend to cycle stuff through more, depending upon what my uh, dietary goals are, and less per season. You know, so now I'm trying to get you know a little bit leaner. So I try to make sure I get enough micronutrients. Usually try to bump up more fibery vegetables. So before I traveled, I ordered a, 
already pre-cut organic broccoli in literally like a five-pound bag. Oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah. I would you know, take a pan, put hot water in it, and just dump it in and steam it for a few minutes, and, you know, you're good to go. Uh, so things like that that are pretty easy to do. And then just try to rotate through. So now that we're back home, we'll probably do more uh, asparagus or maybe Brussels sprouts or things of that nature. Another tip, too, is um, if people have a farmer's market near them, you know, just kind of going there because you'll automatically get the stuff that's in season. And you'll probably see stuff that you wouldn't normally have otherwise. Uh, grocery stores are, I think, kind of good and bad in terms of you can get almost anything you want at almost any time of the year. Prices will vary. Um, but now, especially as, you know, berries coming around, we were just in Hood River. So we got some really good, uh, just massively huge uh, blueberries that some friends of ours had picked too. Uh, so just showing up at a farmer's market is a good way to kind of add more rotation and more superfoods in. Right, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned uh, spinach. I've been on a kick lately with spinach and – now, I dislike whole raw tomatoes. I, dis, I, I despise really? them. Uh, but <laughs> I will eat – It's the slimy, seedy nature of tomatoes I cannot get behind, right? But <laughs> I know that as a 50-year-old dude – Spinach and tomatoes are good for my prostate, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, without digging into specific nutrients, but the point being is, I've been eating a lot. I just get frozen spinach, and I get I like fresh salsa, not the salty kind of yes. you know yeah. fresh that you get from like Sam's Club. And I throw just a, a couple of big tablespoons of that uh, and spinach in my omelets. You know when I make my egg white and oh, egg yeah. eater omelets, that's and great. yeah, delicious. And it's a way for me to sneak it in, but that's been one of my things lately. Yeah, I, I think I'm remiss not to include tomatoes probably on on that superfood list. It's one of those things where I cognitively I know it's good for me, but viscerally I just I I have to find a way to <laughs> overcome my my dislike, you know, for raw tomatoes. Yeah. The other thing I've done with tomatoes is if you can get the vine ripened ones, I just find that they tend to taste better. Um, my favorite tomato is something called a beef steak tomato, like super dark red, super firm. And then I'll add a little bit of vinaigrette possibly and just cut a bunch of them up, put them in a dish, and then add just a little bit of feta cheese and sea salt. And I'm not a big tomato fan. I don't hate them, but I find if I do that, I can eat them, and they seem to taste much better than just kind of plain. Right, totally. Okay, uh, well, you know, let me add two cents. I, I was talking about eating a lot of spinach and tomatoes lately. I've been freezing blueberries. I get fresh blueberries from from a wholesale club. I just, I basically just, I spray a thin coat of Pam on a cookie sheet, dump them on there and freeze them, and then I just dump them into a big freezer bag because then they don't stick to each other, right? Yeah. Uh, you can also buy, and I know this is probably brand specific, but at Sam's Club, year-round, they have this triple berry blend giant yep. blackberries and and uh i love it so I, I dump those in my oatmeal all the time that's kind of a double whammy functional thing and i think kelly and i probably do that oh conservatively four times a week maybe five um, <laughs> oh, but yeah oatmeal and berries uh kind of thing uh i like to cook with curry uh but i i sort of just um resign myself to using a supplement form of that because the bioavailability is so poor and it stains everything yellow from your cookware even your teeth if you're eating constantly eating curry and uh, I, i've heard i've seen marie spano talk a little bit like in her tweets and whatnot about oh you're just not going to get enough you know through the curry powder it's just so poorly bioavailable well if you eat it all the time i gotta think it's gonna it's gonna be like those blueberry things right it looks like it might be destroyed in the body or not even absorbed but then you know there's some suggestion that clinically people who eat like that have benefits you know so um yeah. that's one of the ones i do wonder a lot about lately and i got this from brian walsh is that i don't know we like the the you know nano particle with you know black pepper or whatever the latest curcumin supplement is is i don't know i often wonder it's like do if we're trying to that hard to make it bioavailable is it really that beneficial i I don't know, and I know there's some good studies on curcumin, and don't send me all hate mail about it. I'm not against it, but I don't know. It's just one of those things I wonder. And if you look at cultures that use it a lot as a spice, they tend to be relatively healthy. And again, that could be for multiple different reasons. But I just wonder if it's triggering some other kind of hormetic response in the body that we just haven't even 
looked at yet. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good point. Uh, I think about that uh, with resveratrol. You yeah, know, same thing. Yeah. Poorly bioabsorbed, so they they use the um, bioparin or bioparin or whatever. They have yep. the black pepper extracts to try to get absorption better. And, yeah, you're right. It does make you think, should that be in my bloodstream then if my body has a barrier against it? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, oh, you know what? We should probably also add cherries to this list. Cherries are another one that I – a lot of people are like, oh, Lowry, yeah. come on. But I don't like cherries at all. Um I don't mind cherry-flavored things. It's the same thing with the tomatoes. I don't know what my my deal is, right? If you can put it in some kind of a dish, I'll often eat it. But dark cherry has been linked to a lot of, like, enhanced uh, recovery from soreness-inducing weightlifting yeah. and stuff like that. Tart cherry juice. Tart cherry, yeah. We were just talking about that the other week, weren't we? Yep. Um, you know, stuff like that. Um, so let's see what else is on my little discussion list here. Uh Times of the year, you mentioned seasonality. That's a good idea. And, that, again, that's why I freeze the blueberries because you're not going to get blueberries the size of large marbles in in December. <laughs> you know? Um, now, you might, like you said, if you go to a big chain grocer, you can get fruit from all over any time. But I think you end up getting the, the sort of less – I don't even want to say less fresh necessarily, but more – yeah, more standard version of stuff instead of the local stuff. Like – I think wild yeah. blueberries are a big deal up in Minnesota, aren't they? Um, yeah, we get a fair amount of them, like surprisingly. Like if you go to the farmer's market, like right about this time of year, you can you can get a fair amount of them. Like when I was a kid, we used to grow raspberries all the time. We had strawberries for a while. Uh, if you go like with the Pacific Northwest, they're just everywhere this time of year too. Um, so yeah, it's, we can get them pretty easily. Um, there's also the seasonality of someone's training cycle, I imagine, you yeah. know. And I, I know Mike's probably similar in this is if I were to undertake a brutal 12 to 20 week dieting phase or a, for me, it was usually eight to 12 week mesocycles of trying to accomplish something muscularly in the gym. Yeah, I might do something different with that. Uh, I think creatine is one of those things where it's hard to do this as a superfood because you could say, well, just eat lots and lots of meat. But that's one of those things like with the curry, I feel like you'd have to eat pounds and pounds and pounds of meat to get anywhere near a creatine supplemental dose, you know. Uh, but I might focus on some of these things, especially the antioxidant stuff, more than at other times just because of the oxidative stress, right, of just training your ass off kind of thing and the, and the muscle recovery and whatnot. Do you eat different foods at different times of, years, uh, of the year for training reasons, Mike? Uh, not too much. It's usually more kind of dependent upon what my goals are, but... Having said that, I do try to rotate more on seasonality, right? So now I'll definitely eat a lot more uh, berries, things of that nature. In the past, I probably didn't rotate or move anything around at all. And then, I don't know, the more I think about it, just having some type of variability is probably going to be a good thing. And a lot of it was just also for economic reasons. I mean, the strawberries you'd buy in Minnesota in the winter just don't taste that good and are ungodly expensive. Right. Yes. <laughs> if you were trying to buy fresh ones. So you're like, oh, maybe we don't really need it at that point. You know, maybe we'll focus on something else at, at that time. And I have noticed with um, eating more vegetables, things of that nature, micronutrition, for people who have like kind of niggly joint issues that they just won't seem to go away. I've done this in several uh, clients now, just massively bump up their micronutrition, you know, especially non-starchy foods like we've talked about, you know, berries, you know, broccoli, things of that nature. Uh, if they're even trying to more in a mass gain phase, you can mix them in a shake, right? So you can take in more of them in a concentrated form. Uh, they do that for even around four weeks. A lot of times the joint issues tend to just go away, which is interesting maybe that's a inflammation related thing or, or who knows but i've just noticed that a fair amount you know i have heard and this just doesn't go away and i don't personally agree with this i've never seen anything directly in the literature that convinced me but that nightshade vegetables inflame your joints i've again i mostly i've heard this through chiropractors and you know there are some good ones there are some not so good ones i guess you could say that about anybody um but like the tomatoes and certain things should be removed from your diet if you have bad joints. I, I can't get on board with that myself. There are too many benefits from things like tomatoes and nightshade vegetables. Some 
health gurus go so far as to say these are almost poisonous or that, you know, they were converted from an original form uh, that people didn't even eat. But I'm like, but that's true of most foods. I mean, you mentioned bananas. Cavendish yeah. bananas are they're almost a reproductive. You know, they're they're yeah. not little seedy <laughs> messes. They're um, they're very specifically changed from the way they originally were. And then what we think is a banana, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of generic Cavendish banana. Yeah, it, like you said, you travel abroad and you're like, oh my god, there's such a variety of fruits. But very often. Yeah. They're smaller, they're seedier, they're a little weirder, at least to our American tastes, because we're used to those sort of very basic things, you know, like uh, apples and bananas, you know, from the way yeah. we think of them. Anyway, yeah, I mean, I don't worry about nightshades for probably 95% of clients, but if, if I do have someone who's working with their physician and they've got some weird allergy stuff and they're on a elimination-type diet where we have to kind of pull things out systematically to make sure their gut is good and what's going on. Yeah. Maybe at the very end of that, I may, you know, have them try pulling nightshades out, things of that nature. But yeah, I think for most people it's probably overrated, but again, it's going to be a individual thing. And I'm doing another food, you know, supposedly allergen test coming up. So I'll see if that kind of jives with anything, which eh, most of those I think are probably a little bit, overrated but that's a whole different topic altogether yeah and i'm not willing to say that there's nothing to that whatsoever i think it could be just like with the the lipids thing we were talking about earlier um genetics and health status and other aspects of your diet there's probably a ton of things that go into who gets affected by the, the either the presentation or the removal of some of these things and i just think we're gonna have to tease that apart i guess so Okay, um, final thoughts on superfoods? Yeah, I mean, I, my general thought, I even bristle at the word superfood because it makes it sound like it's got to be, you know, from the Amazon rainforest picked by, you know, <laughs> original, you know, Aborigine member when the full moon, two piranhas stuck to his ass, and then it's like, oh, it's a superfood because it's so rare and hard to get. It's like, eh. Just eat a wider variety of stuff, eat more colors. You know, if you can get stuff that's a little bit more organic or, you know, locally grown, I think it's going to be better. Like you mentioned with the blueberries, you know, fresher is probably going to be better. But on the same hand, people don't need to completely flip out and lose their mind over it either. You know, just because you couldn't get your in-season organic blueberries from your favorite farmer down the road doesn't mean you should never eat blueberries either. You know, because in fitness, everyone wants to go one extreme to the next or this or that single superfood is going to fix all your issues. It's eh, unlikely, you know, it could be yeah. beneficial, but, you know, you're just humans are just not that fragile. And that's that simple. But I think the vast majority of people, even some lifters I've seen, right, because they tend to be even more creatures of habit, adding variety to their their diet, especially looking at different colors, maybe adding some some mushrooms, especially if you can get them fresh. Uh, things of that nature, I think, are are very beneficial. Yeah, you use the word rotation a number of times today, yeah. and I think that's good, right? I I like that concept, and I've never seen any hard data that it's true. But the average yeah. American eats like fifteen different foods in rotation, right. and if you can just do one thing this week, like yeah, I'm gonna go pick up some mushrooms. You know, yeah. screw it, let's just give it a shot, uh, kind of thing. I mean, keeping food allergies in mind and everything else, obviously, but. Yeah, and throw in, or maybe it's for the next uh, two months, you're just going to munch almonds and see if it lowers your LDL, you know, or raises HDL or something like that. And just kind of uh, a play with bringing in something into your rotation. Because, yeah, words like variety, which I like that word a lot. I think if you boil all nutrition down and you had to to a single word, that would be as close to the truth as you could get. But yeah. variety presents information overload and it, yep. and and your word rotation that suggests that you've got your top 15 favorite tunes and you're going to try one new one for the next month or two you know kind of thing yeah i tell people to do what i call the the grocery store game or even better if you can go to a farmer's market you go to a grocery store that you know has fresh food stay to the more perimeter of the store and your job is to come out with at least one food you haven't had in six to twelve months I don't even care what it is. You know, it could be a new flavor of kombucha if that's the craziest you can get, or like you said, a new type of mushroom you've never had, or mushrooms just in general you've never had. Just 
pick one thing and eh, try it. You know, worst case, you spent four or five bucks and you hate it. All right, fine, whatever. You know, but you may find that, oh, this is actually pretty good. Um, The second caveat I would add to that is that you probably want to look to see how to cook it. I did that once with uh, rutabaga. And that was a horrible experiment because I didn't realize you have to cook the ever-living crap out of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Right on. Yeah, well, all right. Well, there it is, everybody. A, a discussion of quote-unquote superfoods, nutrient-dense foods, or phytochemical-rich. I would suggest that this is a topic that really, it sort of paints the if-it-fits-your-macro guys into the corner, right? Because you're... You're not going to get this yeah. from cheese puffs and Coca-Cola. You're just not. Uh, and I really believe these things have long, uh, long-term long kind of effects on your health. Uh, and again, the orange and cheese puffs, you know, that's not some kind of a beta carotene or a lycopene <laughs> or something. That's <laughs> that's like yellow number five or something, you know. It's not yeah. the same. Not the same. Okay. All right, well, that's it uh, this week, everybody. We've got several guests coming up in, in the next month or so, and we'll see you then. See ya. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, Lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at Phil's hall of iron and if you want something about motivation or daily training Fortress's hall has what you're looking for There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. uh, Knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.